Data is critical in building an effective PR strategy, and PR will always be a creative discipline, but storytelling powered by data-driven insights is a match made in content marketing heaven. And today, I asked one of the smartest data journalists I know to join Jacqueline and I in a discussion around using data to enhance your storytelling. Vladimir Kuprianov and I worked together at Distilled, and now he works as an independent creative data journalist with a passion for data visualization, statistics, and storytelling. I call him VK. So I jump at any opportunity I get to work with VK, and I think that after this episode is over and done with, all of our listeners will see exactly why. Welcome to the show, VK. Thanks for having me. All right, VK. So um, tell us a little bit more about what you're up to these days. It's been a while. I know Jacqueline and you still get to work together often these days, but it's been a while since we've worked together. So what have you been up to? Yeah, it's true, Britt. Um, much like in my uh, distilled days when we used to work together, I still mostly help marketing uh, teams uh, in brand. So within brands and marketing agencies use data in their content um, campaigns, be it from sort of generating ideas, which are kind of powered or inspired by data, or just doing the kind of the ground, the legwork of collating data sources from various um, databases, statistics, uh, releases, and all that kind of thing. And kind of all the way to uh, the analysis and visualization of data and uh, helping um, either marketing agencies I work with or marketing teams um, create a sort of data visualizations that tell interesting stories for for their for their clients or for their audiences. Uh, stories that not only kind of use this kind of good data and analysis, uh, but also um, kind of resonate with the broader audiences and uh, can have sort of have that potential to um, to earn links and coverage online. Um, this kind of uh, spread across various types of um, of, of work. You know, um, this is creating content as, as a work from scratch, as in just writing things and uh, looking for data and, and analyzing it and um, writing up those findings, creating so graphs to accompany them. Um, it also includes things like um, writing surveys and kind of analyzing their results and kind of producing uh, visuals off the back of that, and all the way to kind of more, I guess, dry academic academic key white papers where the projects tend to be quite long and sort of dragged out and the writing is a little bit less uh, sort of consumer facing as it were but uh, a little bit heavier on the detail around again the data the analysis and um, and the kind of the conclusions and the findings but recently I've been actually doing quite a bit of work in um, dashboarding working with uh, someone that I think we both uh, know and remember from um, the still days again it's um, He's called Josh Bratton, I think his last name is, and he, um, he used to work at uh, Rasmussen, um, one of the, my all-time favorite clients from, uh, from this of circa 2013-14, which allowed us to do very interesting uh, data visualizations at the time. I think were quite, they were quite unique compared to uh, most of the stuff that was coming out uh, in sort of content marketing uh, space. But yeah, and I've been doing all the dashboards in Data Studio, and essentially helping uh, kind of visualize the data around uh, sort of more audience research and market research and uh, trying to connect the dots between um, things like brand awareness and brand recognition and uh, considerations of different industries and uh, and um, goods and services to kind of the online activities of these of these very same brands to so kind of seeing uh, how say their uh, online campaigns be content or social uh, how they kind of echo in the brand awareness um, that is kind of the, the, the data for which we get through um, through surveys. That's been quite a lot of interesting work because it kind of combines the two things I quite enjoy, which is the kind of the data analysis side of things. But of course, this being dashboarding work, um, it is very much also 
visualization and it's sort of a, something I, I particularly enjoy doing. So it's been quite nice. Um, kind of changed that a little bit because uh, it's not technically content as it were. It's a little bit more, I guess, business insight or marketing insight rather than kind of consumer facing, you know, coverage earning content. But it, is, it has been definitely very interesting and something different to uh, Bridging a little bit more into that kind of data this space that I've always been uh, very keen on, as you know. Yeah, that's really interesting and funny that you are still partnering up with some old clients that you had back in 2013. That's so cool. Indeed, I feel like I owe most of my sort of uh, freelance success to just those, uh, was it four, five or six years at Distill, where I've had to, the pleasure to meet and work with uh, a lot of great people, including yourself. And, you know, here we are collaborating on this <laughs> podcast, the second season of, of the show that you and Jacqueline are running. I think that's, that's also very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, one of the things from season one that I wish we would have talked about more was data sourcing and telling stories with data. So why don't we start with how you find potential data sources to work with? Uh, and just to give a bit more background, as to how VK and I used to work at Distilled, we were constantly coming up with content ideas on behalf of our clients where they were steeped in data. Um, you know, sometimes, for example, someone on the team might come up with an idea and it might involve some proprietary data source from, you know, the client internally, or it might be a publicly facing data resource such as a government website or an API. We would come up with a content idea, you're super knowledgeable in knowing whether or not it's going to work. And that's why I, one of the biggest reasons why I love working with you is I might come up with this crazy idea using data and I, I then I wouldn't know A, how we're able to source it or if it's able to be sourced. And you were always that person that I went to for that that answer. So tell us more about, you know, your secret sauce for that. There's been actually quite a few times when I was asked to put together or to share, as it were, um, a secret kind of repository of, you know, of links or like, you know, a link list to all these amazing places where you can find data. And uh, I, I'm, I, I'll have to disappoint everyone, but um, I don't actually have one. Um, I, I did, of course, use uh, data sources on, you know, same data sources in multiple projects. It happens. You know, you have your sort of, you know, Census Bureau for the U.S. or the Office of National Statistics in the U.K. You have your World Bank for the sort of international cross-country comparison uh, data, especially around the sort of things like various economic indicators, but also including things like um, uh, flow of, um, of tourists, um, say, between countries, for example, is also in there in the World Bank data set. Then you have your kind of more kind of uh, crowdsourced proprietary things like Nambio, for example, is a pretty decent source of cost of living data it is uh, very much user generated and is based on the kind of cost estimates the various people living in the various parts of the world submit about the, those places where they're living um things like you know prices of uh, a, a meal in a restaurant or you know a, a bottle of beer and stuff like that but yeah so there's all these different data sources that are clearly used multiple times but I never really had a, a need to keep a list of them purely because i i firmly believe that googling these things as they come, if so, as and when they come up, is is way better, because Google is so powerful uh, in, in in the search sort of sense that just find getting to the right data data set or data table or the, the page that contains data you're looking for is a lot faster by just you know opening a new tab in Chrome or whatever your browser is, and just tapping the search bar, you know your topic plus a few keywords maybe things like statistics or data we'll talk about that in a second. 
and just you get to that point a lot quicker than you you know going to your bookmarks opening that let's say google spreadsheet with a bunch of links to data sources trying to figure out which one you actually need for this project and you know maybe do a command f and trying to look it up in there and open that link and then search within the site and i feel like i'm the kind of person who always tries to kind of be very efficient with my time and optimize these kind of small inefficiencies of like having to open these things and search uh, in ways that are inconvenient. So my default is always just go to Google search. And of course, I often end up on the very same sites like the Office of National Statistics or the Census Bureau or World Bank or Crunchbase or, you know, uh, all that stuff. But doing it through Google search is, for me, a lot easier. And of course, it's not quite as straightforward as that, right? You, I mean, you probably, if you are just going to go into Google search and type, you know, travel statistics USA, you might not necessarily very quickly get the right results. This is where I think um, the broader point to be made is the kind of the importance of um, kind of knowing how to search or what to search for. And I'm going to start with, um, I guess, with um, what to search for. And to me, this is also like a big part of uh, how I work with various um, marketing teams and digital agencies on, on, on their ideas, on their content pieces, um, different sort of stages of their development. And it's kind of, it's the kind of, easily overlooked or easily underrated desk research part of it, right? Where you kind of have to go away a little bit, uh, take a few hours, hopefully, if you have a chance to spend a bit more time doing this, uh, a day or so, just reading about the topic. Of course, some of the topics will be more familiar. Things like travel, something we've all probably done. We kind of know a little bit about it. We don't know what things are called. And it's probably easier to get to the right sort of types of um, keywords for you know searching for data faster than say for example is something related to i don't know offshore wind energy generation which i knew very little about before this project i had to work or had to work on a few years back but the point still stands i think going back and kind of just doing that bit of research about the topic it gives you those kind of search keywords that you could then use with various terms to find statistics on those topics because i mean there's a bunch of different ways you can um, kind of uh, you get to it but ultimately just usually just by reading about the topic, be it informational sites, news websites, you may discover some other pieces of content which already exist in the topic. They can give you the idea of, of how to search for things. And going back to the travel example that I gave earlier, so if you Google some of the things like Travel Statistics USA or Travel Data, um, I don't know, North America, you will probably get to the results you want eventually. But I think if you, if you were, for example, to go and read some of these uh, travel trends reports on the likes of CN Travel or Travel Plus Leisure or one of those many, many travel publisher sites or travel sections of mainstream news media sites, you'll probably notice at some point that they're referencing specific data releases from uh, various either you know world tourism organizations or, or places like that, and they operate slightly different terms. And once you pick up on that, for example, in that case, I think uh, helping refine that um, to data source for that idea was just literally twisting the term to something like visitor statistics or something like that which gave us this a lot quicker than just Googling these generic kind of broad terms and stuff. And uh, This is just one example. Another example was, um, I think, when um, someone actually was able to locate the right data source, like as in the website, and there was something about, I think it was, um, they wanted to find out where in Europe people grow the most strawberries and different kinds of fruit and vegetables, just for like a kind of lighthearted kind of human interest sort of map uh, story. And actually got the right data set. It was like a European Agricultural Commission administration, something, something. I can't actually remember. But they couldn't really figure out what the right data was. And it took me kind of reading a few. In this case, it wasn't the media, it wasn't the media articles. It was more like some policy documents and 
and some um, sort of those very dry government reports to find out that the data points they operate to describe these things is called, I think, relative crop yield, again, something like that. I don't remember the exact detail, but once I knew that that was the metric, I wasn't able to like plug that term into uh, into that website and, or just look it up in the spreadsheet and in, so that I, I downloaded it from there to be able to see, okay, this is what we're looking for. This is exactly the data that you need. You were, you were almost there. You were just missing that little bit of specialist knowledge to be able to kind of make that connection and get to that data, uh, to the final data that you needed in the end. And I think this is where kind of that importance of this research really really shines because if you spend the time reading about these things, you'll probably pick up on that lingo that they use uh, either in, in the news sort of media of it or in the kind of industry reports or uh, industry bodies in the language they operate. And, and usually because it's often the people who, especially as far as like industry reports are concerned, it's often those organizations that would be either be closest to the actual data sources, sometimes, you know, people who actually recently data with the government or similar agencies, or they would be themselves uh, kind of owning that data. The better understanding you get of the, of the language they use, the better, the more effective your searches will be. And just to cover a little bit uh, the, the kind of the actual search mechanic of it, I mean, sure, I mean, I think everyone can uh, quite easily uh, probably imagine you just need to plug in things like data or statistics or stats on the back of it. But things that I found helpful um, were mostly more recently as uh, the kind of this process of like data aggregation and kind of data almost as a as content has become uh, kind of more evident and more prominent on the web. I feel like there's more kind of data sort of the more data sets that are kind of described in these very data e terms. So I'm talking about um, things like uh, searching for uh, say travel statistics and then adding things like CSV to it. CSV is like a file extension, uh, which is called, it's, it stands for comma separated values. It's just one of those type of Excel files, if you will. Uh, but because it's often how these data sets are stored on the, you know, on the source web, on sort of on the, um, the likes of like Census Bureau or data.gov.uk, you can quite, you could sometimes more easily get to the exact data quicker rather than, you know, going from statistics, oh, this is based on, this and how do you get to that? You have to go, so often go through a few steps before you get there. So yeah, sometimes it just takes uh, you're adding that kind of more specialist keyword, as it were, to your search, and you can do that with um, using you know the plus operator on on Google or just uh, taking it in in inverted commas and making sort of making sure that the pages returned do contain some CSV. It doesn't always work, but it is sometimes helpful. On a similar note, um, you can try and Google for things like data set. So your term plus data set or your term plus database. Sometimes it yields uh, some interesting results uh, in that uh, you actually get the source of the data rather than um, something, say an article about the data. So yeah, um, I do recommend kind of playing with these different um, kind of uh, additional keywords to your main topic keyword to get to that kind of uh, potentially uh, either, either more precise data set you're looking for or actually just get into any data at all versus just getting some articles about the topic that would just mention words like statistics or data. I actually wanted to, I wanted to tie it back to something from an earlier episode in season one, actually. Jacqueline, you'll remember this. Carl, uh, Carl Anthony, mm -hmm. who's the editor of Automoblog, one of his biggest pieces of advice for PRs was to become an expert in their industry and not not just be an expert in, you know, communications and their craft, but also the industry that they 
they um, run PR campaigns for and that they play in. And I think that speaks volumes to what you're suggesting here, VK, because, um, you know, in order to even know where to begin, you mentioned being knowledgeable on the the sources and the resources and the industry white papers, for example, that your field puts out. And would you recommend then, what I'm taking away from this is maybe one helpful first step is for people who are in-house or maybe who um, you know, have clients in one particular industry is to start creating like a data bank basically of resources that they should know about and they should keep tabs on, whether it's an, a white paper that um, an authority puts out each year um, highlighting the state of that industry um, or whether it's a government resource, they should know that this is going, that this is a thing that releases each year and this is when it releases. I mean, yeah, I certainly would recommend kind of taking interest in these things, uh, especially if, I guess, if you work in-house, it's, it's not been, it's not ever been my experience. I've always kind of worked in agency and now, again, as a consultant, kind of dipping in other things, which makes mm-hmm. it slightly more difficult. But I guess if you do have a chance to kind of immerse yourself, I mean, uh, in terms of keeping tabs, absolutely. I kind of expect a lot of people who are working in-house in the positions of, say, the, you know, SEO managers or content managers or marketing managers are probably already aware of these things. Uh, but I guess if you are um, kind of starting out in this, um, yeah, it's definitely worth doing it, especially if it is kind of something you'll be uh, looking to kind of to use on a semi-regular basis to create these uh, so the data-driven stories or data-driven campaigns. I would definitely, definitely encourage that. So one of the things you probably will be finding if you are searching for data sources um, or for like statistics or data around, around different different subjects would be the other pieces of content or actually I must still say that I rarely encounter like organically other branded content I don't know why uh, I think it's supposed to rank for these things maybe not for the things it's not for the terms like x statistics or whatever but um, I think oftentimes you would find at least um, some of those sort of data journalism pieces uh, created by uh, the big publishers New York Times the Washington Post your Quartz Bloomberg etc and because journalists tend to be transparent with their sources, especially as far as data is concerned, unless it's like strictly proprietary, you would tend to find their sources right there. And that often kind of saves you some of that kind of legwork you would have had to do uh, just you know, sussing them out from, you know, the government websites or the other sort of repositories or databases. Um, so that actually really helps uh, to just kind of get to the get to the data stuff against a lot quicker. And it, it would already have been Kind of, you, you would almost already know that it's reputable because it has been used by one of these big bigger publications in their own piece. So you know it's you know it's good data, or at least as as good as one can get. Or you know, in the in the kind of I guess more in the in the PR sense, it's good enough for a journalist, which is probably you know as good enough as it as it needs to be for a piece of content to potentially impress a journalist. Um, and um, yeah, so that's kind of one of the things you're gonna be finding. And reverse engineering then literally just means like you know, looking at the piece that they've created, be it a, a journalist or another, you know, brand agency, etc., and kind of going to the sources and seeing where the thing, where the data came from, and that eventually lets you. Uh, most of the time, I think most most uh, pieces of content I encountered tend to have sources. Maybe not with exact links, but maybe it'll be like the link would be like written out uh, in a text in, on an image. That's also fine. You can just type the URL. Uh, it's already again. It, 
it's a bit tedious, but it will be faster than searching it all by yourself. Um, so I highly recommend doing that because ultimately um, it not only saves you the searching part, it almost saves you a little bit of that initial validation stuff. Right? So you, especially if you are talking about pieces of um, actual data journalism on the sort of on the on the media websites, because you already know like they wouldn't have used it if it was shady. They wouldn't have used it if it was if it had obvious gaps unless they would unless they mentioned it. So it kind of saves you, it kind of gives you that additional kind of I guess credibility to use it in your own in your own piece because oh you know New York Times if it's good if it's good for New York Times it's probably good for whatever um, you know the content you're going to create. Um, and uh, this is I think again is a it's a wonderful kind of shortcut to be able to kind of you know it's like stand on the shoulders of these sort of giants as it were in the media world and just kind of literally just pick that link to the data set or just the name and then google it and find that if you can use it as well um, and that's been super helpful i think that's also really smart too because you can find new angles maybe um something that even speaks to the client that you're brainstorming around too, um, because there are stories that you can tell within a broader story. And so I love that. I love that su suggestion. Just a word of caution for these things. Um, so because especially when reverse engineering things, especially when reverse engineering uh, data sources from news articles, by virtue of uh, sort of um, terms of use of various statistics, something that a journalist is allowed to do or to use isn't necessarily something you'd be allowed to use as a as a content marketer or as a brand just because there are some kind of legal implications or legal restrictions to using certain data so you kind of have to always be careful uh to make sure you know you could still use it because even though journalism is by, by and large a for-profit activity it's still seen as a kind of exempt from these kind of commercial use um type regulations even though of course especially uh organizations with paywall very much use the data for eventual commercial gain. Uh, but of, your case would 99% of the time be different. And when reverse engineering these sources, just bear in mind that you're not violating any terms of use. Um, or if you are, I guess, be prepared for, for legal action. It is unlikely, but it might happen. It's something, if you are aware that you're kind of using data you're not probably supposed to be using, perhaps, just make sure you make it clear, first of all, to the, to the, kind of, to the stakeholders need to know about it, like your, your manager or your client. And say, look, we're not supposed to be using this data, but chances are, you know, nothing's going to happen. But always put that on the table and always be aware that you might be violating some of these terms. And the second thing, uh, when reverse engineering things, um, just bear in mind that uh, some of the sources, just by their nature, are kind of inherently biased. And it's usually kind of down to the issue of them sort of being proprietary or created based on, um, you know, not some rigorous data collection but more just like users submitting uh there is data or um you know um just some one organization collecting this data does not necessarily have access to the totality of it and the good examples of these things are uh for instance crunchbase which is hands down my my go-to source for anything tech startup vc related absolutely great source but you have to kind of know when you are using Crunchbase, and it's probably less the case for the U.S. because you know it is you know it is owned by TechCrunch, and of course they'll have the all the data you might imagine on American startups and you know VC activity, founders, co-founders, uh, funding rounds, etc. But um, when you're working on this and looking at this internationally, uh, say uh, at the startup landscape, using Crunchbase is again 
probably going to be very good and probably one of the best data sources you can find. But you have to be aware that it's probably not going to be as robust with regards to data in different parts of the world, specifically non-English speaking parts of the world. You don't even have to go as far as, you know, your kind of Southeast Asia or or parts of Africa, for example. But even I imagine it might not, the data in, in Crunchbase, and this is, I hope no one's listening from Crunchbase. I really like this source. Anyway, um, I'm not trying to say anything bad, but you kind of have to be aware that, for example, it's probably not going to have as robust data on startups in the likes of France or Germany or Poland or Sweden, just because uh, it's either being updated by Crunchbase editors or people just registering their own businesses on, on Crunchbase and kind of adding their own data into it. It's not going to, it's going to be asymmetrically popular in different parts of the world. Same goes for kind of speaking more accessible industry um travel right or food or eating out i know that in the states i think people use yelp for these things for example i can almost assure you very few, a lot fewer people use yelp in europe so if you were to go to make some kind of you know uh best rated italian restaurants in the world sort of thing you're going to use yelp you're probably gonna you know uh, end up with quite a biased source there because in Europe, everything travel and food ratings wise is usually TripAdvisor. And again, um, you can probably imagine that on trip, within TripAdvisor, your data will be a lot more robust in the kind of big populated countries like the UK or France or Germany or Spain. We're probably going to have find fewer reviews and therefore the quality of those ratings will be lower for less popular countries. Again, when versus generating sources, and this is, I guess, probably more applies to um, sources from other content pieces that are probably. Are willing to take that risk and use the source that potentially less robust, just because you know they don't they don't have necessarily that level of journalistic scrutiny of sources that you would find in Washington Post or the New York Times or uh, or similar news organizations. And just be aware that like the data could have these inherent biases, so we are going to use it again. It's probably worth just kind of bearing that in mind at the very least, or at most, kind of issuing a caution at least internally to the team or to your manager or to your client that. It wouldn't be representative for those parts of the industry just by nature of how this data is collected, compiled, uh, presented, etc. All right. So shall we move on to finding stories in data? So once you have this data, what mm. are your best, what are your tips and tricks for finding the stories within them? Because I know personally, you know, I'll have this data source and, you know, you get in the weeds of reading through it, and then you're just overwhelmed. You probably don't face this problem, BK, but I just get overwhelmed with all of the information that's at hand. What oh. What's your best practices for that? Oh, I get overwhelmed all the time, Britt. Uh, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's I think it's part of part of the job, as it were. It's good. Deep dives often can be a little bit overwhelming, and it's uh, occasionally nice to just step back and uh, sort of let it marinate, as it were in your brain and come back to it with fresh eyes. But um, I think the answer to your question is kind of, um, again, tying it all back to what we spoke about earlier, and that is the kind of the initial research that you do, right? The kind of knowing the industry, the knowing the client part, where you would, I think, just by virtue of spending some time and reading about, reading different stories about the industry, reading the reports and stuff, the trends, what have you, you already have some idea of what would be interesting or what kinds of things would be interesting to look at. Um, as in, you know, are you looking to compare different states? Is that why you, you know, you, you can't get this data? Are you looking to uh, compare different industries or say how different sectors of the economy have done, you know, during the recession or uh, which cities have the highest salaries for 
I don't know, marketing managers, you kind of, you almost, you would already have some of these hunches, I think. And um, if it is uh, kind of tricky to, uh, to kind of come up with them on the spot, it might be worth just writing, just make, taking some notes as you do that initial research, as you are kind of looking for this data. And uh, especially if you are reverse engineering some other data stories they already found, or just reading kind of news media articles are relevant to the industry or the topic. Uh, you can just simplify it now at that, at that point because that's when I think, at least in my experience, they come to you most naturally. And then once you get to data set, okay, you kind of almost already know, okay, oh, we're going to look at state by state thing. All right. Or maybe, uh, you know, we're going to look at like, oh, kind of the, the, the overall split. So most of the time you're looking for some interesting differences, I guess is, is, is the most generic way to summarize it. And that can either come from looking at averages across different categories or locations or countries or industries or that can come from um yeah that kind of you know maximum minimum uh type of value so like if you're looking at some kind of average salary or i don't know uh highest number of um tourists visiting a given country or a given state you kind of want to see what's at the top what's at the bottom because that's usually as you know yourself i i think you fielded this request many a time during our uh, still give me some top ten tables, top ten, bottom ten for this thing, please. You know, it's 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 it's, mm-hmm. it's that is it. Ultimately, you're looking for those top ten, bottom ten. Like usually, you would find the data. You kind of know what your core interest in it is, be it which countries grow the most strawberries, or you know, uh, which city has the highest number of ed tech startups, for example. You kind of want to know what's top and what's bottom, right? And is that is that interesting? Is that surprising? Do you, is that surprising enough or do you want to maybe aggregate into some sort of say state level and look at, at that breakdown or do you maybe want to um, to see if you uh, which of these um, cities say has startups with the highest amount of funding they generated or something like that I think you almost intuitively have these questions and I think data journalists call it querying the data or interviewing the data I I'm not I guess I don't roll with the metaphor all that far, but for me, I call them hunches. There's some things, oh, that would be interesting to see. Oh, that could be interesting to have a look at. Can we just, you know, and it's usually, thing is, data analysis sounds like such a very kind of dry academic term with, you know, uh, covered with shrouders of mystery around all the techniques that go into it. And some of it is that, but I think as far as uh, kind of most of the content marketing is concerned, uh, a lot of the analyses or the methods of that analysis actually quite simple and it often just comes down to being able to categorize your data correctly or like you know choose the correct break breakdown the most interesting one is it by age or by gender or is it by city or by state or etc 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 and most of the time what we end up doing is just averaging data looking at top and bottom things um the easiest way i find doing it is visualizing and um, it doesn't have to be anything fancy although there are all sorts of tools fancy visualizations these days that are free and very accessible very much sort of click and drag uh sort of interfaces and stuff like that no coding required it's actually for a lot of them it's their selling point and i'm happy to drop a few links um in a separate sort of um, email or doc we can then yeah we'll link to them figure out the best way to share these things but yeah um for me it all kind of starts with just um you know inserting a graph in Excel or Google Sheets or whatever your choice of a spreadsheet tool is and just like seeing some of those top top 10, bottom 10 or what the averages looks like or how it's, you know, how it differs from one part of the country to another. And I think if, if it kind of grabs me, if it's interesting enough, and again, I often, part of it is measuring it 
based on kind of what interests me, as it were. It's hard to separate kind of your working self from your personal self, I suppose. So do I, do I find this interesting? And secondly, does it is it interesting from the point of view of what I what I know about the industry and the client and the typical narratives uh, that you, you you'll see in the media in this space? Does it make sense? Does it stand out somehow? Does it offer something interesting? Or even if it's not immediately all that interesting, you can always kind of ask, is this new information? Did people know before that the ed tech capital of the United States is Austin, Texas? I'm making that up. I'm not sure it's true. Probably not. But, you know, sometimes it just has to be new and it's also fine. Right. Um, but yeah, ultimately, like finding these stories, just like following these hunches, kind of trusting your instinct from from your earlier research, or if you are working in-house, you probably already know kind of what's interesting in this industry, what sorts of claims or stories would be in, kind of you could make that would be compelling uh, kind of within the industry and potentially uh, could earn some coverage in the more mainstream press, for example, more consumer-facing um, sort of outlets. Yes, I feel like a lot of the time it kind of comes down to just asking these questions correctly, and then the methods of actual analysis are usually incredibly simple, just like looking at top-bottom values averaging things out and just, you know, throwing graphs into the spreadsheet and seeing if, you know, it's essentially if the difference between, um, you know, different points in the data uh, kind of is interesting enough to you. And if, if you is the person, if you are, sorry, if you are the person who uh, spend this time kind of getting into the data and looking at it and kind of reading all this stuff around it and trying to see what could be interesting about it, I think your kind of initial instinct, oh, that's interesting, oh, that's interesting. It's probably a good enough sort of response for this to move to the next step of uh, shaping this idea into a data story. What kind of tools do you use, VK, for visualization? And then in terms of how this might be useful for some of our listeners, um, we love free tools. So are there any free tools out there? <laughs> yeah, I have a few go-tos. I mean, I often, like I mentioned earlier, start in a spreadsheet. For I mean, for the most part, it's enough to you to know if the story is there the difficulty with spreadsheets kind of starts at the point where for most most of the time it's the mapping even though i think these days google sheets definitely have the ability to plot data by country around the world i'm not sure if they have done the states yet probably not but so for any anything more advanced than that i tend to kind of jump into a tool called tableau i think or tableau tableau probably um they are um more of a BI, business intelligence tool, but they do have a free version. Uh, it's called Tableau Public. You can just download it. And it's very much a click and drag sort of thing. It's essentially just like advanced Excel with a few more capabilities. I mean, this is a very reductivist way of looking at it, but um, it is quite basic. It almost feels like it was made for people who use Excel a lot. And you just essentially, you're like, most of the time you feel like you're creating like a visual pivot table. Uh, which isn't to say this is necessarily the easiest thing to, to create for, for people who don't necessarily spend most of their time in spreadsheets. But it is quite straightforward to use. And not only does it have that kind of mapping uh, capacity to it, um, it also just allows you to kind of customize your kind of simple charts a little bit more. So with Excel stuff, you tend to kind of often uh, be limited by this very like two-dimensional sort of, um, you know, uh, graphs where you have like, you know, something by year. And you know you have the value, or you know, average salary by state, and you have to have the map, or or just the, or the bar graph, and the, you know the length of the bar. Whereas in a tool like Tableau, for example, um, not Tableau, I really should say I really should say it correctly. Uh, 
Right, so in Tableau, you can actually uh, do some something more advanced um, visualization, even of using very simple visuals, but say, instead of just having kind of that one bar graph, uh, let's say, you know, average salary by city, you can then kind of split it into groups of, say, by state attached to a given city, and, uh, and Tableau would give you that opportunity very, very easily, whereas I think you can probably achieve that kind of uh, visual in Excel or Google Sheets, but probably would require something a little bit more more advanced skills. Um, yeah, so Tableau is my, my go-to for these things. Um, then there is a, a funny old tool called RAW, R-A-W. It's my go-to for all the kind of weird graphs, so stuff you wouldn't get in your kind of spreadsheet um, spreadsheet type software. Um, what RAW does, it has these all these sort of weird graphs, so things like stream graph or things they call circle packing, so like there's a bubble bubble charts, they're just kind of floating about and stuff. And it's really quite handy for that. And it's uh, what I love about it is that you don't actually have to like import files into it. I mean, you can, but what you could just do is like literally select the you know, part of the table, part of the spreadsheet and, uh, you know, copy it into the interface. And then you just go ahead and visualize it. You don't actually have to go through the trouble of exporting, importing your data and stuff like that. And you can yeah get some uh, pretty cool visuals out of it. Um, one of the other great things about um, RAW is that it allows you to export uh, those visuals into um, a vector format, an SVG, which uh, your designers will be very thankful to you for because they can uh, just usually take it and kind of style it up, scale it up to that more presentable, polished visual. Because ultimately, both. Um, Tableau and raw in my in my use case give me very raw visuals just kind of enough to either see what this, whether the story is there and then if it is to convey that, that it is there to whatever the next person uh, in line of this uh, production cycle be it the, uh, the you know the member of the team I'm, I'm working with to, um, to refine the idea or indeed the designer who will then kind of take that initial visual and mock it up to um, to a proper visual that's kind of looks good enough to belong on, you know, on a in a piece of content. So that's the second one. Um, and actually, more recently, I've been using a tool called Flourish a lot. Uh, Flourish uh, actually came out of this uh, data visualization studio um, company. They're London-based, and uh, they kind of became famous. I say famous, going fast and loose with the word famous. There, they became famous in the dataverse world by doing quite a lot of visualization work for The Guardian in the UK. And then they kind of um, they decided to create their own tool called Flourish. And uh, they use kind of those kind of advanced charting technologies um, in JavaScript, the one called D3. And um, essentially, they gave you the uh, ability to um, create those kind of fancy looking graphs, interactive and all that by literally, again, uh, similar, in a way similar to RAW, by copying and pasting parts, you know, this data into the tool and then choosing that visual and then customizing the colors and some of the interactivity elements and stuff like that. Um, and that's been also quite helpful. And it's kind of a bit of a happy medium, I guess, between um, Tableau and RAW in that it is a web-based tool because Tableau, you do need to download it. It's going to live on your on your laptop or your computer, and um, you do you can upload things online and share them that way. So and, and just like RAW, Flourish allows you to export most of the chart, most of the charts except maps. I think not sure why that is, but not maps. But all most of the other charts you can export into SVG and give it again to your designer, who'll be very grateful to work in a very 
sort of uh, designer-friendly format, this vector format, allowing them to quickly scale up the chart, add the right colors to it, or you know make it look uh, kind of more in accordance with the brand guidelines uh, they're following for for the eventual client or the eventual website where this visual is going to live. So that's probably my three top choices at the moment. I should also probably mention a little cool tool, little tool called Data Wrapper. Um, just again, a very little, all these are free to use. At least they definitely have free versions, right? But Data Wrapper again, they have that couple of copy and paste sort of interface. The charts are a little bit more limited than in the likes of Flourish, um, but it is quite a nice tool, and um, it's very kind of easily kind of it's quite easy to kind of manipulate the visual and kind of add the colors and stuff yourself, and um, you can quite easily generate that kind of embed code and drop it on the website. So if you are doing kind of um, some of that stuff yourself without necessarily involving front-end developers in creating the kind of eventual final visual, uh, both Data Wrapper and Flourish can actually give you those near-polished um, charts. So you can simply you know use that small code snippet and drop it into um, drop it into uh, the code on um, on your website or your blog and just have that chart ready. And um, yeah, the, the nice thing about, about these is that, yeah, they're completely online and, and I, don't, I don't think Flourish does, but Data Mapper actually supports an uh, integration with Google Sheets. So if you have the data in your Google Sheet and even if you want to update it, or say on a monthly basis, you just want the charts to repopulate, Data Wrapper allows you to do that completely free you just have to you know connect it to a google sheet and then it would then check it automatically i think every day or every every so often and just would repopulate your visuals and then if you do have just a visual living on your blog saying some kind of i don't know trends in in, in some industry or um, you know say it's a segment of um you know of uh, your analytics you want to share with with others you can just have that data populate the chart from google spreadsheet via data mapper and you only need to create it once you need to do it again once you've settled on visual type and stuff so that's yeah probably my four yeah i would say these are the, the four tools i use the most there's a few others for more specific i guess use cases um but i i, I think these four will definitely cover 99 percent of the needs that's a great little tool set of um free things for us to check out. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of We Earn Media. If you like the show, please subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a review, in fact. We'd love that. And as always, feel free to send us your thoughts and feedback, any curiosities, anything you want, really. We love emails to podcast at weearnmedia.com. Thanks, listeners.